Now, St. Ignatius has three meditations on death, judgment, and on hell. Mental prayer is the raising of the heart and of the mind to Almighty God. So in this prayer, we can imagine ourselves, or rather our bodies, being taken for burial. See the plot of ground? Our molten body being lowered into that ground. And we can imagine the cross of our Lord and Our Lady by his side. We can approach Our Lady and ask that she intercede for us, that the death of her son, in our regard, may not have been in vain. For we wish in this meditation to have great sorrow for our sins, And we also wish to implore the divine goodness for that gift of all gifts, the grace of final perseverance. A man may now be in the state of sanctifying grace, but he cannot assure, he cannot merit that he will die in sanctifying grace. However, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Alphonsus Liguri as well, Tell us that although we cannot merit this gift, if we beg for it persistently, humbly, the mercy of God will grant to us what his justice cannot grant. And so we approach Our Lady making these requests. And then we think about death. Why? In order that there might be some movement of our will, so that we might implore Almighty God for grace, the grace of sorrow for our sins, tears for them, the purpose of amendment, First thing that we can consider is what is death. Death, the catechism tells us, is the separation of the soul from the body. Man is a creature composed of body and soul and made unto the image and to the likeness of Almighty God. When the body and the soul are separate, death takes place. The body is buried in the ground and the soul goes to its judgment. Death is a fitting punishment for sin because man by sin turned away from God towards creatures. And as a result, Death removes all creatures from man. The man who likes to breed dogs, to ride horses, 
will no longer be able to do so. The man who liked to tinker with machines or to read books. The woman who liked to cook, worked in her garden, will no longer be able to pursue these pastimes. These creatures are taken from her. We're separated from our friends, our relatives. A man is separated from his parents, from his children, from his wife. He's even separated from himself because man is not a disembodied spirit. He's a creature composed of body and soul, but now, because of death, his body and soul are separate. Death is inevitable. It will come to me as it has come to millions before me. This is not a matter of divine revelation. For people who are not Catholic, people who do not believe in God, still recognize the inevitability of death. There is no territory so small that it does not have a cemetery, the silent reminder of what lies in store for all of us. Years ago, I taught English literature to high school students. In the text that we used, there was an inscription from an 18th century rural English countryside. It was addressed to the passerby and read, What you are, I was. What I am, you will be. Death, it's inevitability. Now, although death is inevitable, the moment of death is most uncertain. Christ himself warned us, you know neither the day nor the hour. You must be prepared. We try to prepare ourselves by receiving the sacraments of the church. And as St. Thomas Aquinas instructs us, by praying persistently for the one thing necessary, our eternal salvation. If we do this, says St. Thomas, persistently and humbly, devoutly, it will be granted to us. In France these days, there is an organization called the Organization of the Good Death. You don't have to pay any dues. You meet a friend and you make a pact that if one of the two of you is dying, the other will inform him. Why such a strange society? Because today we are living in secular times. 
This was born upon me several years ago. Before I went to Tanzania, East Africa, my religious superiors sent me to the University of Notre Dame for a course on Sub-Sahara Africa. In the class, there was a nun who worked as a nurse in a hospital. I asked her one day, Sister, if one of the patients is dying, do you inform him? She did not give me a straight answer. Several years later, after I had returned from Africa, I was assigned to a parish in Arlington, Virginia, where the National Orthopedic Hospital is located. I used to give communion at that hospital three or four times a week. And I would receive phone calls in the middle of the night, sometimes during the day. The man in charge of the emergency room was a good physician and an excellent Catholic. One day he had a member of his staff called the rectory asking us to come at once and administer the last rites. When I got off the elevator, I saw standing in front of me a frantic woman. She beckoned me into a, an empty room. And there she told me that I had been summoned for her husband. While she delayed me, he died. I did, of course, anoint him conditionally. I point this out to show you the temper of the times. She was not worried so much about her husband's eternal salvation as to how she would react to his discomfort. And so these people in France cannot reply upon members of their household so they rely upon one another to prepare for the supreme test, the test of death. Now death can come very suddenly. It is axiomatic that the old certainly die and the young sometimes die. When I was in Tanzania, one afternoon I went to visit a man who was sick in his hut a neighbor who was hale and hearty and jolly was visiting him. I returned the next week, and the sick man was hobbling about. But his neighbor, the man who was hale and hearty and jolly, he had already been buried three days. We know neither the day nor the hour. We must be prepared. Several years ago, I was teaching at Bishop Minogue High School, Reno, Nevada. On the last Friday in October, twin sisters, Maureen and Eileen Lanham, were on their way to school. The two girls were exceedingly excited. First of all, it was Friday, the last day of the scholastic week. Secondly, there was to be a homecoming day dance that evening. 
It was a crisp, cool autumn day, not a cloud in the sky. As Maureen was approaching the school, she signaled to make a right-hand turn from the highway into the driveway. She could see the rays of the sun glancing off the chapel roof. Only after she turned did she realize her mistake. Blinded by the sun, she did not see. Coming at 95 miles an hour, a cyclist. He hit her with such an impact that the car catapulted. It landed on the cyclist, killing him instantly. The two girls were thrown from the car, and both of them in comas were taken to Warsaw Community Hospital. Three months later, Maureen Lanham, pretty, popular, honor student, 17 years of age, died. We know neither the day nor the hour. We must be prepared. It is ironic, but the most important moment of our lives is the moment when we leave this earth. If we are in the state of grace, we will be happy for all eternity. But if we are in a state of mortal sin, we will be condemned from the presence of Almighty God forever. St. Paul tells us, it is appointed man once to die, and after death comes the judgment. We know from our catechisms that there are two judgments. One is called the particular judgment, and the other is the general judgment. We find the general judgment in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. The king enters and separates the goats from the sheep. And to those who are on his right-hand side, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy that has been prepared for you. How marvelous to hear from the lips of our divine Savior those words. But to those on his left, he will say, Out of my sight, into the everlasting flames that have been prepared for the devil and for his angels. St. Thomas points out that it is fitting there be two judgments because we are social creatures as well as individuals. And at the last judgment, we will see the effect of our good and of our evil deeds. The Catechism of John Paul II points out that this judgment will be the beginning of punishment for the damned. That is, for those who have rejoined their bodies and their souls. Many people who unjustly enjoyed 
a good reputation will have that reputation unmasked. And others who were despised in this world will be exalted. There is, however, the particular judgment. And this occurs, according to theologians, at the moment and at the place of death. If you die in a hospital, that's where your judgment will take place. If it's in a car crash, they're in the car crash. St. Basil, one of the four Eastern doctors of the church, has a scenario. And in this scenario, the devil, like a prosecuting attorney, reads the vows that we made at the time of our baptism. And having read this document, he says to the culprit, these are the sins that you have upon your soul. Basil goes on to say that in that dreadful hour, the walls of the room where we committed sin will testify against us. Our own consciences will bear witness to the faults that we have committed. Then says St. Basil, there will be an angry look on the face of Christ, the gentle Christ, the savior of mankind, will address the culprit and say, what more ought I have done for you that I have not already done? You cared nothing for the wounds in my hands, my feet, my side, for the crown of thorns upon my head. Dreadful moment. The devil, like a prosecuting attorney, reading the vows we made at baptism, our consciences bearing witness against us, the angry look on the face of Christ. Then the sinner will say to the mountains, fall upon me, and to the hills, cover me. What lies before the culprit is the unending punishment of hell. In chapter 25 of St. Matthew's, Christ says to those on his left-hand side, out of my sight, into the everlasting flames, prepared for the devil and for his angels. He indicates the two punishments of hell, which are everlasting. One is the pain of sense, the everlasting flames. The other is the pain of loss, for we have been made for God. St. Augustine said, Our hearts were made for thee, O Lord, and they will not rest until they wear us in day. At the time of judgment, the sinner realizes 
that he was made for God. And he will never be able to possess him because it's its own fault. And for all eternity, he will be tormented by the realization of how easy it was for him to save his soul. In his meditation on hell, St. Ignatius, good psychologist that he is, does not focus on the pain of loss, which is undoubtedly the worst pain. But he focuses on the pain of sense. Men do not see God, and they are not discomfited. It is not the proper time for us to enjoy the beatific vision. But it will be at the time of judgment that the sinner recognizes the whole meaning and purpose of his life. And so St. Ignatius focuses on the punishments. The pages of pagan literature from Greece and Rome are filled with stories about the afterlife and the punishments that the damned suffer because these men realized that a man can escape the justice of men, but not the justice of the gods. Dante wrote the Divine Comedy, and in the Divine Comedy, he devised many kinds of punishments to suit the various crimes committed by the damned. Now Ignatius bids us in our meditation on hell, to beg Almighty God that we have a vicarious experience of damnation. Why? Because he doesn't want us to lose our souls. And so he quotes from the imitation of Christ. If the love of God does not prevent me from doing evil, it is well that the fear of punishment do so. The first pain he presents to us is the pain of not seeing in hell. Or I should say, this can be interpreted in two ways. The sight that the damned look at is dreadful. They see bodies enveloped in fire. Horrible. Or else they can imagine they're unable to see well. Because St. Augustine says there is a difference between the fire in hell and our fire. Our fire provides us with light and warmth. But the fire of hell has one purpose only, and that's to punish. It doesn't provide us with the warmth, the coziness, nor the light that we need. Secondly, Ignatius bids us to consider the other torment, the torment of the ears. For hell is a cacophony. The damned in hell blaspheme that is, they utter words of hatred against Christ because Christ has condemned them to hell. 
They utter all sorts of other cries because of the torments that they are enduring. Now we know what it is like if we're trying to sleep and heavy metal is playing or baby is crying. But these things come to an end. The cacophony of hell never comes to an end. He tells us that even the olfactory, the sense of smell, is assaulted. We can imagine the worst thing that we ever smell. I recall when I was teaching at Bishop Minogue that one Sunday night, vandals broke into the school building and set the office ablaze. Thanks be to God, the fire department was alerted and put out the flames before they spread to the rest of the building. But ever afterwards, when I went into the school, I could detect the sickening smell of smoke, even after the room had been painted. On another occasion, I went around Manhattan Island on a Circle Line cruise. At one point in the journey, a barge laden with refuse, garbage, hove up alongside of us. The stench was so overpowering, all I could do was say a few prayers for the sailors on board. So Ignatius bids us to consider the olfactory sense also being assaulted. Next, he talks about the interior sense. For Christ tells us that in hell, the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. The worm is the worm of conscience. Those who are damned are like the demons. They have chosen irrevocably hell. However, they do not like their suffering. And consequently, they reflect on how they could easily have overcome. It may have been the example of a good mother. They saw respected but never followed. It may be a sermon that they heard, a book that they read, but now there will be no more opportunity. As the tree falls, so does it lie. If the tree falls to the north, it remains there. To the south, it is undisturbed. The tree, according to commentators, represents man. We can gain grace as long as we are alive. Many people who are going far astray have made a good confession before they departed from this life. But once we die, there is no more room for the grace of God. And because of this, hell is eternal. Now those who are suffering the various pains of hell are also reminded 
that those who are in heaven are enjoying bliss. And the joy of those in heaven make the punishments of those in hell even more unbearable. Finally, the sense of touch. I suppose all of you at some time or other have been burned, or at least you put your head into the oven and experienced that extraordinary heat. The prospect of death by fire is the most terrible. Joan of Arc, when she was threatened with burning at the stake, recanted her visions. Thanks be to God, moved by the grace of God, she recanted her recantations and died a glorious mortal. I recall once again at Bishop Minogue High School being present for a homecoming. For weeks in advance, students gathered together wooden boxes and put them at the open end of the football field. At the appropriate moment, a remote control vice was set up, a plunger was pressed, there was an immediate conflagration. I could see from the chalk marks on the field that none of us could get within 70 yards of the blaze. And though it was a cool evening and I was wearing an overcoat and a hat, I could feel the sweat trickle down my temples and under my armpits. And the first thought that came to my mind is this, if I cannot stand this, how will I be able to stand the pains of hell? Now in his conclusion in the meditation on hell, St. Ignatius says, there are those in hell who lack faith. Without faith, says St. Paul, it is impossible to please God. And St. Mark, at the end of his gospel, tells us that Christ commissioned the apostles to go into the whole world, preach his message to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who refuses belief will be condemned. Faith is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We need charity. The Ten Commandments bind us under the love of God and the love of neighbor. Ignatius then points out there are those in hell who were there before the coming of Christ, those who were condemned during his lifetime, and those who have been consigned to that place since our Lord's ascension into heaven. But we are not in hell. We may have committed many sins, but still, because of the grace of Christ, there is the possibility for us still to save our souls. And though this meditation has been difficult, maybe even dreadful, it is most salutary and uplifting at its conclusion. For we give thanks to Almighty God that up until this moment he has been so gracious to us and that he still holds out for us the promise of eternal life. God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.